Welcome to a new episode of DevSecOps Podcast. Today, we will discuss how you set up the perfect dev environment. There is always a place for nostalgia. And um, back in the days, like uh, when, I, uh, when I worked in Ericsson, and we haven't been using Git, so before Git times, we, yeah, we had that thing called clear case. And uh, the, model, the way of working was to store everything in there because ClearCase was capable of swallowing pretty much anything you put in there. Yeah. And it came with its whole virtual file system that you could uh, kind of mount locally and all like view is what can work on the files. And um, the way people worked, there will be a team that would prepare something called clear case view that would uh, show you a certain version of the files, and they would store all the tools you need for your work in clear case. And you will just switch the views, and you will get different set of tools, and you will get a different set of scripts that you can run and configure all environments and everything. And um, uh, so that was. That was actually nice, and we had everything in there, like the tool chains, like compiler tool chains, everything. So you could go back five years ago, select that view, and you will still be able to recompile the whole thing and build it from scratch. And I call that quite impressive feat of engineering. It took a lot of work from some smart people, and we did ruin everything when we moved to Git. So... It, it wasn't like that any longer. So it wasn't so repeatable. Yeah. Uh, and, but still, in Ericsson, you have applications towards, um, well, at least back, back in the time, so it was 10 years ago, you had applications uh, for your customers. So you support a certain version, and if you need to do a patch on top of that version, you need yeah. to be able to compile it. Yeah. And it comes with the challenges, right? So you like your toolchain provider might go out of the business and you still need to be able to build it somehow. Things like those. But if you step out of the embedded world and go into the web development, yeah. it's, it's, it's totally different. Like what worked today going to break tomorrow because some dependencies have changed somewhere or it's just got deleted from GitHub or something. Yeah. And uh, getting the stable baseline is complicated. And that's a story. And this is like, when I when I look at things today and how they used to be in some places, not everywhere, I'm still puzzled how polarizing that experience could be. But it boils down to the problem of how do you get developers productive, right? So yeah. you have a team, they need to have tools. They need to have like a tool chain of correct version like, for instance, they do Golang. They need to have Golang of correct version. Yeah. Right? Not like 1.11. And, uh, or you do Terraform. You need to have a Terraform of correct version because if you touch Terraform state with a newer version of Terraform, people running older version of Terraform will yeah. not be able to run it. So that's one thing. So that just the tools distribution, having that baseline of the tools and making that work across devices like you might be lucky if everyone runs on mac for instance but some might 
uh, run on Linux. Some, God forbid, will run on uh, on uh, Windows, and you would have to support those platforms. And then you also need to set up all the environment for Windows, right? Yeah. For access, for instance, getting access to your cloud provider, getting the correct parameters for your builds, stuff like that. So all of that requires work. And I could see every project needing that in one way or form. And uh, Yeah, but, but I mean, how, how do you do it today when, when you change? Because I, I imagine you change more like projects than I do, right? Uh, do you have some, when you set up a new project, do you think about these steps and trying to Well, I, yeah, that's the thing that like uh, most of our customers, they're like early stage startups yeah. and that's the last problem they have, yeah. like the development environment consistency. So it's quite often is unsolved before we come. So we, we, we oh, bump yeah. into this all the time. Yeah. For myself, right, like when I'm coming to the new customer, I need development environment, at least for myself. Yeah. So I usually would run uh, VMware. I will run a Ubuntu virtual machine on, yeah. on the Mac, and then I have a script where, well, it's actually not a script; it's just gist in GitHub, where I have commands and the nodes <laughs> yeah. of what I need to install yeah. and how to do that. And most of that is just copy paste, drop in like the Git configuration, right? Yeah. Generating the signing key for the Git. Registering yeah. that signing key to GitHub or GitLab, depending on what customers using, and uh, I don't automate that because I don't do it often enough. I might do like it once or twice a year, and the time I spent on automation would probably be more than I would do it. So there is no return of investment. I just keep the script updated every time I run it, and fix things and maybe add stuff. And also, if I find a new useful tool, I just add it to that list. So I install it next time I do it. But for other customers who are more mature, I actually like for one of the customers I built together with another guy, we built a tool yeah. that would be environment aware. So there are like environments and it will configure your local shell to work in that environment. So it will set up, if you say like, I want to be in dev, yeah. it will set all correct environment variables for you. Stuff like that. So, and it could also download tools, put them into the where the bus will find them and stuff like that. And it's capable of updating the tools. But we build the tools in tool in house, and I haven't really seen open source project doing something like that. So I'm curious how people approach this. I, for me, I'm just going back to to Docker. I try to Dockerize everything on my. Um... On machines, I have my 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 laptop, and then I try not to install any like language on it. Like I don't even have pip on it, right? And I do a lot of Python, and then try to have it in Docker and Docker and Docker. So every project I go I build a Docker, I have a template, of course, because they use the uh, same. Yeah, I, I like that, and uh, actually that's the reason why I'm using virtual machines because yeah. well. The Mac is not exactly Linux, right? So it's, it comes with the shell there, comes with it works. Yeah. And uh, I don't really like to have Mac dirty with all the stuff I need to install for the customers. Then it just stays there. It's kind of hard to delete later on. So that's why virtual machine is uh, my approach. But you could do the same with a Docker, absolutely. And uh, there is also the thing called Vagrant from Azure Corp. Yeah, 
and they did position that one as a development environment tool for building development environments. Yeah, I use Vagrant before a lot to developers, but I thought when, when Docker arrived, it's I don't know why we never got it started. I think we used it for like like older PHP project, right? But you need like an Ubuntu from the the seventies that you install, and then you can add like your old Python or like PHP packages. 4.3 or something, and then get it working because that was really hard to get working on on a developer Mac or yeah, also uh, distributing the virtual machines yeah. is not the most trivial thing. No. I mean, they're big, but the size is quite well. We yeah. we got quite good internet pipes nowadays. Yeah, but still, like downloading a couple gigabytes each time. Yeah, and probably doable. Yeah, but then you update the master and then you need to pull it again. It's like it's like Docker, but it's big. But, I mean, oh. but what well, kind it comes, of it comes with UI? Yeah, but what kind of options are they? They like work locally, install all the package locally. You can do like virtual machines, right? You can do Docker in in the middle. Yeah, there is another thing that you could do. Like in my team, I have yeah. a couple of guys who are using Cloud9. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's an online editor from, uh, online IDE, I would say, yeah. from AWS. So the way it works, AWS will spin up EC2 for you. And uh, it will give you an IDE in the browser that relies on that EC2 and it's also terminal from that EC2, which is quite nice. So you could edit the code. You can do like push-pull if you need UI for that for some reason. And uh, you can run commands. And then you could also build IMI with Packer, for instance, to get all the tools and there that you might need. I even like wrote a file script that pre-configures Cloud9. Been yeah. trying to force myself to use it. Yeah. But eventually, just went back to the virtual machine. I'm like halfway there. I actually started. Uh, I was building this, um, working with Kafka, and I needed to have like consumer and producers. A lot of them. I needed a Kafka, I needed Elasticsearch, and like when I started that uh, Docker Compose on my laptop, like everything else like goes down. So, so what I did is like I installed Ubuntu on on, the, on a server, like. 40 cores, 130 gigs ROM, and then I actually use code uh, remote executor or like remote code. And then I can, it's, it's like local, but it's, I'm programming on, on that uh, like server instead. Um, uh, yeah, there is, a, there is a, an, another teammate is building this thing like that. He's running the virtual. Visual Studio Code remotely as a server yeah. on a, on a EC2, and then connects to that from his laptop using Visual uh, Visual Visual Studio Code yeah. client yeah. locally. Yeah. So it's yeah. similar to GitHub Code Spaces, I think. Have you tried Code Spaces, Julian? You tried Code Spaces? I just know the basic feature of uh, you know if you go to a repo and you press the the dot on your keyboard. This yeah. opens an editor, but I haven't really dig deeper. I, I, it, it I don't code that much anymore in the sense that I, I just have like maybe two weeks to implement a feature on the project on a probably in a different language. So I switch between Java, Go, Python, Scala. Uh, I 
there is a bunch of language that I I use on a day to day basis. But and how do you keep track on all that? Do you have like do you just mean virtual machines or is it all installed locally on your on your Mac? I assume you have. Or I like... don't have time for that. Like the the less I automate, the better I go. So I just get really proficient to installing stuff, and mm. I I have no hesitation to reset everything to where it was. Yeah. Like uh, I I tend not to install things globally. Yeah. So I have some kind of a bin directory in my home directory where I put some of the stuff. Yeah. And sometimes I have to add the version number to the binary so I know which version I need to execute without dealing with some hmm. specific package version manager that drive me crazy. So it's like it's so brutally like raw yeah. that uh, it feels... It feels uh, ineffective, but for me, that switch a lot, it's it's faster. I, d- I don't have to think too much. It's like, okay, this is the command. This is what I use. I, I, I It's very minimalistic because most of the, the time, I don't even have time to configure my IDE to have like a code completion or things like that. Yeah. So it's like being efficient in that sense. I just come get the job done, be able to write tests, be able to run tests. Most of the time I work in, on Kubernetes. If you develop an, an operator, yeah. like those are a pain to test. And so I, I usually, you know, find ways because I, lately I tried to run a Kubernetes cluster on my machine and that completely borked the laptop. Uh, like uh, unless you have 32 gigs of RAM, I, I don't recommend you do that at all. Or you have like a small cluster in the cloud that you can easily, you know, deploy to on without disturbing anyone. Uh, th- that would be the, the fastest way. But like, d- don't use like Minikube. I always use like Minikube for building operators and like. Kubernetes. Sure, that's not the problem. It's more like the the you know you, you need more than one service usually, and so you need yeah. like probably a database and then probably yeah, yeah, some yeah. other services. And sixteen yeah, yeah. gigs of RAM is barely enough to to do anything. Like I, I've seen people who's just with the browser they managed to fill that up. So yeah, it's. Yeah. It's just like the the kind of environment that we have now is so huge that I don't think having a local setup makes sense anymore. And that's why having this remote code execution or these cloud IDEs makes a a ton of sense because you just pay for what you use, right? Once you close it, you don't need the, the, the VM anymore. You can back that up to a storage like a S3 or GCS and, and you're good to go. So... Uh, it becomes more and more dynamic those environments, and I would say I, w- I would say like if you want to have very stable development environment, every Monday you delete everything. Yeah, just yeah. do it right. Yeah, and, and then you rebuild, and you would see like after a while you would get a script that is so well thought because you do it often. You know the DevOps yeah. way. If you're not yeah. good at something, do it often. Yeah, and, and then you you get good at it. But, I mean, my case is not very much everybody's case. Uh, usually, you know, people program on one or two languages maximum. Uh, I, I'm way past that. You've been to multiple companies, Julian, right? So yes. how did people solve that in other companies? Like, you're, you're joining the new company. How do you set up the tools they use. So what is the common way of doing that? They keep saying from your experience, you don't have to name the companies, but just if you think about it, what so was the way? I, I've, I've seen everything uh, in the sense that, 
So I've seen a setup with Docker Compose and Git submodules. Mm-hmm. So they have like the, the main repository, but all the sub sub repository are actually as Git submodules inside that main one. And you just pull the code to the correct uh, version and you can build from there. Oh. I've seen a huge monorepo with Bazel uh, that builds everything. There is everything in that into that monorepo for the whole mm. company or the whole department. And it's like mm. Infrise code, Kubernetes, uh, manifest, tooling, mm. and then code. Uh, and this is kind of nice. It's, it's really hard to wrap your head around for beginners. But once mm. you get up and running, you wonder how you ever worked without it. Yeah. Um, there is also this, um, I, I tend, when I, I, I try to improve wherever I go. So if you have like plenty of small repositories, uh, I tend to add the script folder. And this is where I put build, run, install dev, uh, yeah. you know, to install the dependency if you need Python, yeah. if, yeah. You need this, yeah. if you need Docker. Um, if you need the the, cons- the tooling for your cloud, those kind of things. Hmm. Um, and, and just those bash script, they, they are rarely more than 20 lines of code. Yeah. And they are really simple. And you know what? A beginner will come and say, okay, I just want to run and I just execute that script and, and it builds everything. And it's just much faster. They don't need to understand everything. They just, okay, let's keep going. So th- there is various way and there is no good way the problem, the problem that you're trying to solve with a with a dev environment is the dependency problem. Yeah, yeah. So how do you manage those dependency? And that can be like uh, I've seen also um, you have like a. But you a, mean source code dependencies, right? So not only because now you also have like uh, emulators for cloud uh, mm. services. Mm. Let's say you use a a, a queue or. You know, sometimes you, you need those emulators because mm. you cannot spin that up even yeah. on, locally or in a cluster. You need to use the real thing mm. or the cloud provide an emulator that you can use. To Actually, I, I think I bring a good point. So what people do is make files. Sorry? <laughs> what people do is make files. They just put make files everywhere. And, oh, yeah. and this is how they manage their environments. And then, like, the make file would get all your environment variables and everything. But, well, it's 2021 today. Even if you're listening to this in some other year, it's 2021. Make files. No, don't do that. Go with something more advanced, so, like Cradle or Basil. I mean, like, you know, like, quite thick books written about those. And... Uh, yeah, I, I do remember writing in one company we wrote uh, what we called it a build system. We do we didn't we we haven't actually thought about it as a environment management. But now when you're describing it, I understand that that build system was basically managing everything. So you would pull down the repository. That repository would have a, a recipe for that build system to work on. And then the build system itself will have its own internals that are not part of this repository, but like, for instance, with a Gradle, right? So you would have like a Gradle file and there. The only thing you need is a Gradle. You run Gradle and from that script, it will pull those internal logic things in and it will apply everything that is written in your script. You actually separate what from how 
right? So you have what's described in the repository and how described somewhere else, and then the build system will bring it all together. The build tool will bring it all together. So yeah. that actually might be a way to go. Though I, I kind of dislike those tools because they're super complex. So Yeah, but how do you keep the dependencies updated, right? If I come to new and run the script, I get the latest, right? No, 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 no. Like your build scripts actually specify dependencies with version. Okay. So like all you could do both. You could yeah. also say latest which will be bad for you because next day it will be something else. But if you take like a Gradle, you have to specify the versions oh, yeah. there. Good. Because I, I see right in new developer coming in, running the build script, get a newer version than the senior developer. And, and then it's like, it's not working here, right? And then it's like, oh, sorry. You have the latest. I have number what it can be here. Uh, I think like a build script are just like a, one half of the equation. The next yeah. part is the deployment and the manifest. So now you, you have all those. Uh, I, I really should mention that there is a tool called Q, C-U-E. It's for a configure unified execute. Uh, it's, um, it's kind of its own language, which is not uh, Turing complete. So you cannot, it's not a programming language in a sense. Mm. But yeah. you can define configuration and it generates JSON or YAML. It can also import schema and verify mm -hmm. that the configuration that you pass through uh, correspond to that schema. You can put condition onto certain value. So you, you can say this value in that configuration is must be below or above yeah. certain amount. And so it, this is what I like by, by this approach is that you have one unified way to do things. And Dagger, so the people from who, who build Docker, they, they spawn up and create their own startup. Okay. Uh, and they use that to create the, I would say, the build pipeline of the future because you, you do everything with it. You build, yeah. you run, and you deploy. <laughs> and you specify that in, in a language that is very uh, short or like the, the syntax is very short. Uh, it, it's not as verbose as uh, JSON and is uh, not as crazy as YAML. Uh, or I should not say crazy, but like a, in YAML, you can write anything, you know, and only at runtime time you figure out if it works or not. Yeah. Here you can actually do validation of the mm. data that you pass. And that gives you a lot of confidence and you can, it gives you a way to improve things without writing your own custom tools. So it's like a uh, protobuf for configuration. A little bit like that. Yeah, exactly. Actually, you can import a protobuf um, message schema mm. and it will automatically check and you can even generate open API, uh, you know, API documentation from there. It's, it's quite a neat. I would say it's still in... I, I would not say it's production ready, although some people already use it in production. Mm, yeah. But uh, I, I would highly recommend you check that out and give it a try. It's right. uh, I, I see a lot of potential in those tools. But I, I would say how, how important do you think it is when you have a product to make sure that uh, if new people come, it's simple to start it up, right? Is that a, one of the most important things you should have in a project? Or can you leave it? What are your thoughts here? So I would highly, highly recommend that you you make those scripts, how to build, how to run, 
and how to deploy something, not for others, but for you in six months when you forget how this thing works and have empathy for the new new user because that new user can be you in six months. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's that's just the way it works in, in teams or how many times have you inherit a project and you know the person didn't write anything and you have to figure out yeah. how, how it works that's that's a, like not very pro- efficient way of it's I not got, a very good use of your time that's yeah, what I, I do mean. I do that for all open source project I do because I worked on them like when I have time so it could be seldomly and then I would have like build test scripts in there yeah. just to remember myself how I did it before how I would set yeah. up like the but things that be, needed to be there. Yeah. Should it be like one of the points when you measure the code, right? You test how many tests are test coverage for this code base, right? How you can deploy it. Should, should one of the important like boxes you should have in the project be like, how easy is it to get it started uh, from scratch, right? Yeah, exactly. How, they, how long would it take for a newcomer to make a pull request to your project? That, yeah. That's a, a very okay. easy measure uh, to, to implement. Yeah. Uh, from the git clone to, to the pull request time. Yeah, like doing the pull request is not very long. You do, you do clone, you do push, you're done. <laughs> True. But the, but the build and test, that yeah. would be uh, the question, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you meant that, so I'm just... Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I, I assume that, you know, people will not cheat, but that's, not, that's a wrong assumption to make. But you have CI for that. <laughs> What is CI there for? You just push and then CI will tell you how good it was. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and the, and the last words here on, on local dev environment before we, we wrap this episode to end. I think we haven't defined the problem very clearly and we haven't really got a clear answer on that. <laughs> but it still feels like that we covered quite a bit of ground that might be useful for people who listen. Definitely. I think there is uh, still a lot of work to do on the discrepancy between your local environment and the way we we build in the cloud or in the CI or how we deploy. It's like a three different project in the same project. Um, And the dependency management is not a solved issue in any language, I feel. Uh, okay. it, it's quite painful to deal with those, and yeah, they, they expect to have some hurdle along the way. But everything has a solution if the problem is clearly defined. Hmm. Cool. Well, send the link for that tool you mentioned from the Twitter guys. Yeah, we will include that in, a, in the show notes. It will be available at devsecops.fm. Yeah. And with that, I will say thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the DevSecOps podcast with Matthias, Andre, and Julian. For more podcast and notes, go to the webpage devsecops.fm. Thanks for tuning in.